both really hinge on the same belief that books have power. Words have power. And that's why they're important. And that's also why the government was afraid of them. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am thrilled to be talking with Addison Armstrong, author of The War Librarian. I mean, it's just fun. You get double the fun. You know, you get to write two characters, two stories, delve into two time periods, and I love, love, love the research part. Like, I love the historical research. Addison Armstrong graduated from Vanderbilt University in 2020 with degrees in elementary education and language and literacy studies. She received her master's degree from Vanderbilt in reading education in 2021. The Light of Luna Park was her first novel. She lives with her husband in New York City where she teaches elementary school. Today, I'll be talking with Addison about her new novel, The War Librarian. So you write that reading has always felt as necessary to me as breathing. Uh, So that's where I want to start. Tell me about your love of reading. Gosh, um, it's hard because I don't even remember learning to read. You know, I just remember always reading. Um, But there is a story my mom tells. I was uh, like probably two, two years old, maybe three And my grandma would take me on walks and, you know, I'm sure they would say things if I saw something on the ground that I shouldn't touch, like, don't touch that. And I would come back, they would say, how was the walk? And I would say, it was good, except I, I can't remember if I picked up any cigarettes and ate them. And, you know, my mom and my grandma would stare at me horrified. Like we were with, you know, my grandma was with me. That obviously did not happen. Um, And so they talked to the pediatrician. They were like, why is she making this up? Like, she's so scared that she did these things that she obviously did not do. And he said, she'll be fine as soon as she learns to read. And it was true. <laughs> you know, he said my, my mind just needed something to do. I had an overactive imagination. And once I was able to read books, it would be funneled into something better. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, as soon as I learned to read, I never stopped. So it's always been, you know, it's been an escape when it was necessary. It's been just a hobby. It's been just my favorite thing to do as long as I can remember. And does that love of reading then transfer over into your characters? Is that something you do intentionally or does it just seem like it's natural for for someone to have that love of reading? Um, To me, it does just seem natural. But of course, I teach third graders, so I know it's not always. Um, I think it just depends on the character. You know, in in the light of Luna Park, neither of the characters are big readers at all. Um, But in the war librarian, it's obviously so necessary to the story um, part of Emmeline's, you know, very character is that she lives more in these books than she does in her real life. You know, she loves books almost 
I don't want to say that you can love books too much, but if anyone does, it's her. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about is we're, we're always, as writers, we're told when we're when we read to read as a writer. How um, much did you learn? Do you think from reading, and and is it? I mean, did you have to do some actual craft study or did do you think it just came from reading so much that you were able to to learn how to be a storyteller? I truly think it was just from reading. I mean, I've never, you know, in college I studied elementary education. I've never really done any formal writing training. Um, I mean, at all, really. It just, I've read so constantly. I mean, I read dozens and dozens of books a year that it just sort of, you know, soaked in that way, I think. And what inspired you then to write historical fiction? What, did you always have an interest in history? Is it, did you enjoy reading that genre? Mm-hmm. Um, it's been my favorite genre to read probably since about middle school. And I just especially love dual timeline because I love seeing how history can be so, how its effects can be so immediately, you know, currently relevant I think that a lot of times in school and just in general, we look at history as this old, obsolete, you know, boring, dry study, which is not at all what it is. You know, it's personal stories, just like the ones we're living will be history one day, you know. Um, And so I like seeing how individual people's decisions in these different times can echo through generations, which is what I love about Dual Timeline. And then I also love, I think history helps us shine a light on our own modern day society in a lot of ways. You know, when we're living in something, it's hard to see it clearly, but we can look back and see, wow, the treatment of this group was horrific or the discrimination, the prejudice was horrific. And then when we are reading that and comparing it to our own lives, you know, we can still see it it makes it a lot clearer what still hasn't changed as much as we maybe like to think it is. So I think historical fiction is actually kind of counterintuitively um, helpful for analyzing today's society. But, you know, short answer, yes, it was always my favorite to read. Um, And so it was just natural that that's what I would write. So tell me more about uh, a dual timeline. Of course, The War Librarian is set in World War One, and then also in, I was it believe the 1970s with the U.S. Naval Academy. Yes, 1976. Uh, So tell me about the challenges of writing the dual timeline and then also the the benefits like mm-hmm. why you chose to to write it that way and, and how yeah. you're able to link those stories there are definitely challenges um i have a lot of reviews that start out with i don't usually like both stories in a dual timeline book but in this one i did um because it's you know it's hit or miss often whether that second timeline holds the same weight as that first one and that actually is something i sort of learned the hard way I wrote a manuscript before The Light of Luna Park that was another dual timeline, and I sent it to probably a hundred agents. And I had some full requests, but no one, um, you know, offered to represent me. And the feedback that I was getting was that my first timeline was really strong, and my second timeline felt sort of tacked on. The character didn't have her own arc as much. There weren't high stakes to the same extent. You know, and when you're reading that second timeline, all you wanted to do was get back to the first one. Um, and I had written that one in in sequential order of what you would read. So I wrote chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. And I realized that even though that was easier in terms of piecing things together, understanding where to put like reveals for the characters and for the reader, it was a lot harder to make each story stand on its own that way. So when I wrote The Light of Luna Park, I went back and I did 
only Althea's story first. And then after that was finished, I wrote Stella's story and then um, ordered them and figured out where to cut the chapters and what to do. And it required a lot more editing on the back end, but it made it so that Stella's story was just as strong as Althea's. And then for the War Library, and I did the same thing. So I wrote Emmeline's whole story first in, you know, 19, in World War One, and then Kathleen's whole story in 1976, rather than alternating. So I think that's probably for me the main challenge um, is just making sure that one of them's not just riding on the coattails of the other. Like, obviously, they need each other. Um, otherwise, there's no reason to do a dual timeline, but that they can, they're both interesting and strong enough to stand on their own. And then for me, the way to do that is writing them separately. So then their challenges on the back end, trying to, you know, weave them together in a way that makes sense to the reader where the, there are parallels, but they're not getting these secrets revealed too early or whatnot. Um, and then in terms of why, I, you know, the, the benefits of writing it. I mean, it's just fun. You get double the fun. You know, you get to write two characters, two stories, delve into two time periods. And I love, love, love the research part. Like, I love the historical research. So getting to really dive into two separate time periods is really fun for me. You know, for the war librarian, I got to look into World War I hospital bases in France and the librarians who worked there. And then I also got to, you know, zoom forward 60 years and look at the first co-ed class at the Naval Academy, which is just an entirely different world. So it's, you know, double double history, <laughs> which I love. Yeah, and, I, and I, that's interesting to hear that you 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 write them separately and then mm -hmm. tie them together, and and that the characters then are strong enough to stand on their own. Mm -hmm. I do want to go back. You you said you submitted your first manuscript to a hundred probably a hundred agents, um, <laughs> but in your your bio you say you you sold Luna the Light of Luna Park in January of your senior year. So just just how young were you when you first started <laughs> writing novels? Um, that's an excellent question. Let's see. I was probably 20 ish. Um, I'm 24 now. I was probably 20. I was student teaching when we sold to Putnam. Um, so like you said, January of my senior year, I wrote it my junior year of college. And were you a little disillusioned at first? Um, and then you're just stubborn enough to, to stick with it? Or? <laughs> stubborn is the right word for it. Yeah. So I wrote that first one, not really planning to, you know, publish it or anything, just writing it for fun, because I've always, you know, just like I've always loved to read, I've always loved to write. And then when I finished it, I was sort of shocked that, you know, a full novel manuscript existed in front of me. So I thought, why not? Um, so I started submitting it. And then it was just rejection after rejection. I knew myself well enough to know that that was going to drive me insane if I didn't have something else to think about at the same time, if it was just, you know, just the rejection. So I was like, well, I guess the only solution is to write another book while I'm in the process of submitting this one. And so that's when, that's where uh, Luna Park was born. I think that's, that's so great that you, you know, you, like you said, you know yourself well enough and that, <laughs> and that worked out for you. It really did. Because by the time that I'd basically exhausted my list of agents that might be interested, Luna Park was finished. So it honestly didn't even hurt to have to push away that old manuscript. I was like, oh, well, I've got something newer and shinier now. Um, and it got picked up very quickly. So well, I just think that's great advice for for writers who are listening mm -hmm. that it, don't just sit sit on your hands while you're exactly. working through those rejections. 
Right. Because I mean, forward momentum, just career wise, but also just, you know, emotionally, (laughs) it's good to have something to look forward to when the current, current project's not working out. Well, I want to get a little bit more into the story of the war librarian, but before we do, can you tell us about your sister? Because you bring her up so many times and uh, (laughs) that uh, I just, I just like to hear it from you, uh, how she's inspired you. Yeah. So Ryan is three years younger than me. Um, and she's currently at Auburn. She's studying to be a pilot. So she's, you know, professional aviation is her major. And it's funny because, you know, we've kind of flip-flopped when we were kids. She would do everything that I would do. I got glasses in first grade. She was probably five, four, um, four years old. And she got, went to Build-A-Bear and got a pair of Build-A-Bear glasses for a stuffed animal and wore them everywhere she went, um, because she wanted to match me. And, you know, she was the one that I made sit down for hours while I taught her how to do math and how to read and all of those things because I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, She was the one that I would tell stories to before bed, you know, because I always wanted to be a writer. And it's, you know, just bizarre how those relationships change because when you're eight and five, three years is such a big difference. But now that I'm 24 and she's 21, you know, she's she's not the baby anymore. (laughs) And she inspires me in so many ways now. I mean, she's just the most fiercely loyal person, I think, that I have ever known. Um, She will not necessarily stand up for herself. um, But if you say something against someone she loves, you know, the claws come out. Like she is fiercely protective. And I just really admire that, um, that assertiveness and that, that selflessness that she's got. Um, and then just the bravery. I mean, I dedicate the war librarian to her because Kathleen is in this men's world, you know, at the Naval Academy. And even today, Ryan's in this men's world, um, doing aviation. You know, people have given her all kinds of nicknames as the only girl in, you know, certain programs she's been in. People refer to her as, oh, you know, that girl, you know, they don't bother using her name. Um, the planes are not built for her. You know, she's 5'2". They're built for men who are taller. So she has to sit on a pillow to reach the pedals. Um, and carrying a pillow in doesn't make her look super professional. You know, people look at her differently. So she's just had to deal with so much, um, even today, that the War Librarian is dedicated to her for that, you know, just bravery and resilience. Well, that's so great. And and it's wonderful just to hear you describe that. And, and it's mm-hmm. good to hear that you have such a, a good relationship with your sister. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the characters then in your novel. Uh, I guess the first thing I, I'd like to ask is, what is a war librarian? Um, <laughs> and how did you come across this history? Um, unfortunately, I cannot answer the second part of your question because I do not remember how I came across it. Um, I truly don't. But I remember my reaction. I was shocked that there are there were these librarians. So during World War I, um, the American Library Association had this massive push to send you know, millions of books overseas to soldiers, as well as to soldiers in camps in the U.S. for a variety of reasons. So to escape, you know, it was often their only way for them to um, stay emotionally above water. Um, but also for learning English, lots of the soldiers were immigrants who didn't speak uh, as much English. It was also for learning French for the soldiers who were in France. It was also for learning trades so that when the soldiers came back to the United States after the war, they would be able to find jobs. 
So there, there was this massive public support, you know, just rallying behind this. Kids were going door to door and collecting books to send to troops and people were donating money. People were donating old books. Um, the government was involved, the War Department. And so there were, in order to distribute these books, there were librarians at mostly at the camps in the U.S., at the training camps um, and hospitals in the U.S., but also through the YMCA and the Red Cross in France at base hospitals. And I found that so fascinating because when we talk about women in World War I, um, aside from at the home front, we're usually talking about nurses. And, you know, if you've read Luna Park, you know, I have so much respect for nurses and that's incredible. But I was just shocked that I never heard this other story, that there were a few brave female librarians that were, again, mostly in the U.S., but some of them overseas serving these soldiers uh, with books. So that is what a war librarian is. Um, there's not a whole lot of information about what they actually did overseas. Most of them would work in like the YMCA recreation huts. So they weren't, you know, only, only dealing with books. Um, and then many of them actually shipped over right as the war was about to end. And so many of them served in 1919 at convalescent camps. Um, and just for the sake of story, I have Emmeline going over a little bit earlier and serving towards the end of the war. Um, but that is, you know, feasible. There were women associated with the YMCA and Red Cross who were doing that at the time. So there wasn't much information available, but you do write that um, you relied a little bit on Mary Frances Isom. Can you tell us yes. a little bit about her? Yes. So she was a librarian in um, Portland, Oregon, and in, in various places, actually. She moved around some. She was born, I think, in Tennessee, grew up in Ohio. Um, and she went over, I think she arrived in France, actually, on, on the day that the war ended. Um, so she arrived to celebrations and all of these, you know, craziness, all this craziness. And her job was sort of to go from camp to camp and set up libraries there with the YMCA volunteers for the convalescents. Um, so obviously when they sent her over, they didn't know the war was going to end the day she got there. Um, but there was still work to be done despite the war's ending. And she was interesting because she also inspired other parts of the story besides just you know, I used her letters to look at what the conditions were in the camps, how the women were housed, like what, you know, in this man's world, what did they do with a female librarian? Um, but she also had an interesting story in the U.S. She was the head librarian um, and one of her employees um, was accused of being um, like seditious and treasonous. And that librarian um, because the librarian refused to, I think it was she refused to buy war bonds. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but it was something. Um, and she showed her patriotism in other ways, but she, the the um, public backlash against her was, you know, immediate and fierce. And so Mary Frances was sort of not forced to resign, but was no longer, you know, because she supported this employee, was no longer viewed um, in the same light. So that's part of why, or at least we think that's part of why she moved away from what she was doing and went over to France in the first place. And I have a lot in the book about censorship and about librarians who refused to take certain books off shelves. And, you know, a lot of that was inspired by those experiences too. 
Hey listeners, this is Colin Mustfold, the founder and editor of History Through Fiction and the host of this podcast. I just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for listening. We are so grateful for listeners like you that support our work and the work of the authors we have on our show. If you'd like to help other readers find our podcast, please share this interview with your friends, family, and social media followers, or post a review wherever you listen to the podcast. As a special thank you for your support, we're giving podcast listeners $5 off the purchase of any book in our online store. Just go to historythroughfiction.com store, select your book, and use promo code PODCAST at checkout. That's promo code PODCAST. Again, thank you so much for listening, and now please enjoy the rest of the interview. Can you talk a little bit more about that censor- censorship? Because um, you write that librarians were forbidden from providing soldiers books that sympathize with the central powers or Bolshevism. Talk about that duality of we want to send books to the front line, but you can only read these books. Exactly. That's what really got me. You know, when I I told you what first attracted me to this, you know, this piece of history was just that it was something I never heard of. But what kept me interested, I think, was that juxtaposition because there's this incredible push for books. And then, like you just said, they're saying, oh, except for all of these books. And some of them, you know, were not shocking that they were they were a band. It was pro-German nationalism books and things like that. But some of the books that were banned were even books about pacifism um, or books about, I think I mentioned this one in the book, they banned a book that was about World War One. It was a soldier's like memoir. And the idea was that if the soldiers read about the horrors of war, they would become pacifists, which just was so bizarre to me because they're there actively fighting in this war. They're very well aware of the horrors. Um, and they're, you know, people are trying to withhold this book from them. And then they also would withhold books that criticize the U.S. government. So there were, you know, pamphlets and essays and texts that criticized, uh, you know, refusal to pass anti-lynching bills and, you know, criticized race relationships in America. Um, And those were banned as well because they were, the government was afraid that they would interfere with the loyalty of the soldiers. So it was that, you know, that paradox of reading is incredible, freedom of speech is incredible. That's what we're fighting for because... The ALA even would say that. They would say, we need to send books to the front because we're not just fighting Germany. We're fighting against this like oppressive power that would have us, you know, sacrifice our democracy and our freedom of speech. And at the same time, they're the ones limiting their, you know, freedom of speech amongst the soldiers. So I really wrestled with that a lot. Um, And I have, you know, Emmeline falling on the side of I'm a library and I cannot ban books. I cannot limit what these soldiers are exposed to, even if I am supposed to. Um, But I think for me in the end, it came down to, you know, I realized it wasn't as paradoxical as it seemed at first because both the push for books and the banning of books both really hinge on the same belief that books have power. Words have power. And that's why they're important. 
And that's also why the government was afraid of them. And and just so, I guess, disappointing that mm-hmm. the conversation continues. We're 105 <laughs> years later. Exactly. And librarians are dealing with the same issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And especially at schools. And yeah, it's, it's just very, very concrete to me, you know, as both an educator and having written this book, and I'm seeing these news articles everywhere. It's horrifying. Yeah. Well, let's uh, move forward here to Kathleen in 1976. Um, So she was the first co-ed class in the United States Naval Mm -hmm. Academy. I guess, first, why do you think it took so long for this step to be taken? And then, I guess, second, from your sister's firsthand experience, Mm -hmm. you know, how far has it progressed since then? Yeah. Um, I mean, you say, why did it take so long? I think it's interesting because so many people would have wanted it to take longer. You read about the way people reacted to, you know, Congress opened up all of the service academies at the same time. It was a requirement. The service academies did not get to say no um, because by themselves, they would not have been ready. You know, the Naval Academy would not have decided on its own to let in women. West Point would not have on its own decided to let in women. Um, And that was reflected in the way that the women were treated, not only by their male classmates, but by the institutions themselves. Um, I mean, there was just all manner. There were, first of all, no female role models, obviously, for them. And that's something that has not changed as much as we would like it to have changed. And there were just ridiculous rules. The women had to wear heels. Um, For a short period of time, the women had to carry purses everywhere they went. And then they weren't allowed to carry purses anymore because the men thought that they would, you know, put study materials in there and cheat. And the women who talked to reporters and exposed the realities were, you know, pariahs. And the women were afraid to be seen together because they didn't want to be labeled as different. And it was just thing after thing after thing. Um, A lot of sexual harassment as well, which has, as we know, in the military, not improved um, nearly as much as it needs to have. Um, you know, you see articles today and I'm still look at those. I'm like, this could have happened to Kathleen. You know, things have changed so, so little in so many of these areas. Um, you know, I think the little things, no one's going to make them wear skirts and heels and carry purses, but those big, those big, you know, institutional and cultures of harassment and silence, that's not changed as much as it needs to. Well, and that's why I think it's so important for you to write a story like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was born in 1982, so I, you know I wouldn't say I'm young, but I'm also not old. Um, <laughs> but that's why we need to see these stories. Um, mm-hmm. I just watched the movie Hidden Figures, where that you know the women face the same challenges, where they have to wear skirts and heels and 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 still do their job, and it just doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, so yeah, it's important to 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 see just how um, ingrained all that still is, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in in our society. Yeah. So talk about the character Kathleen. Um, who is she? How did you come up with this character? Obviously, you know she's maybe inspired a little bit by your sister. Were there some other women in your research that you wanted to bring out? Um, no specific women. I. I did read, um, there's a book, First Class, which was, it's a fictional story, but it sort of combines the experiences of all these women who were at the Naval Academy, you know, into like two uh, fictional composite characters. 
And while Kathleen wasn't inspired by them, obviously her experiences in large part were because they were all real things that happened to real women. Um, she was just a figment of my imagination. I think, you know, I wanted someone who was very different from Emmeline, you know, someone who's not living in her head, but who's very practical, very goal oriented, um, almost to the point of, you know, isolation and she's sort of antisocial. She's, um, very much, very single-minded. Um, but there are other characters in the book, uh, in Kathleen's story that are based off real women. And there are a couple actually that are real women. So there's one Janice Buxbaum who organizes a women's meeting at the Naval Academy. She's a real character um, or a real person still alive today. And, you know, that meeting is something she really did organize. And I wanted to, you know, honor her in that way. Um, And then I also have, I went to the Naval Academy and I was able to get a yearbook from 1980. So the class, you know, when they graduated And I was able to look through it and, you know, kind of pull some names, you know, first names or descriptions of the women, um, things they said, just fun little tidbits to sort of combine into some of Kathleen's classmates. Well, the the reviews for your novel have been overwhelmingly positive, but I do want to ask about the only negative criticism that I could find were some people calling your characters social justice warriors. <laughs> I took that as a as a compliment, an unintended compliment. Well, it, it seems like a very yeah, a very curious way to criticize the book. Um, so how how would you respond to to that to a reader that gives that kind of feedback? Yeah, I mean, I understand that you know. People's complaint sometimes is that we're putting our 21st century sensibilities onto characters that would not have felt that way. But I think that's simply not true. If we look at the women that did exist in the 1970s, so many of them were so much more radical than we are today. Um, You know, there were these women that felt this way and did these things all the way back, you know, to the suffrage movement in the 1920s. And before that, there are these women who have always had these ideas And we might not hear their stories as much, but that doesn't mean they didn't exist. So I think those of, you know, those reviews that are just, you know, anti-social justice, you know, so that's, that's their problem. (laughs) But those who think it's not accurate, I think that would be my response to them because maybe that was not the prevailing attitude of the time, but there were those individuals and there always will be. And that's, that's why we make progress. Definitely. And I think that's that's very well said. And, you know, as you said, it's just simply not true. There have always been um, people like that. And, and and as you say, there always will be. Um, well, I want to congratulate you on, I mean, obviously your, your previous novel did very well. And, and now you have this new novel out and you're you're still very young. Um, what what do you see is next for you? Um, obviously, you'll continue teaching. Will you branch out into other genres? What are you working on now? Yeah, that's a good question. I do have a middle grades manuscript um, that's historical fiction, um, also sort of not fantasy, but ghosts and, you know, not <laughs> not not exactly the same as what I've done. Um, it still needs editing and all of that before we can start pitching it to publishers, but it does exist. And then I definitely want to keep writing adult historical fiction, probably still dual timeline because um, it's, you know, it's just my favorite and I have a short attention span. So I like getting to write, you know, two short stories instead of one long one. Um, but, you know, nothing concrete. 
obviously this is my first year teaching full time. So I've been just, you know, mentally exhausted all the time. I love it to death, but I am tired. So we will see come summer if I am able to be a little bit more creative and, um, you know, have some more concrete ideas about what's coming next. But there are some things I'm working on. Well, Addison, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I love your energy. I love your passion. And this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me. This has been a blast.